Chapter Two of The Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Two The Secret of the Moon. Norton, whose watch it was, had already hurried toward the pilot room where were located the controls and the various instruments. This room, which was just forward of the engine room, was in effect a circular conning tower which projected about twelve inches above the upper hull. The entire circumference of this twelve-inch superstructure was set with small ports of thick crystal glass. As I turned to follow Norton, I spoke to West. Mr. West, I said, you and Mr. J will place Lieutenant Commander Orthus in irons immediately. If he resists, kill him. As I hurried after Norton, I heard a volley of oaths from Orthus and a burst of almost maniacal laughter. When I reached the pilot house, I found Norton working very quietly with the controls. There was nothing hysterical in his movements, but his face was absolutely ashen. What is wrong, Mr. Norton? I asked. But as I looked at the compass simultaneously, I read my answer there before he spoke. We were moving at right angles to our proper course. We are falling toward the moon, sir, he said, and she does not respond to her control. Shut down the engines, I ordered. They are only accelerating our fall. Aye, sir, he replied. The lunar eighth ray tank is of sufficient capacity to keep us off the moon, I said. If it has not been tampered with, we should be in no danger of falling to the moon's surface. If it has not been tampered with, sir, yes, sir, that is what I have been thinking. But the gauge here shows it full to capacity, I reminded him. I know, sir, he replied, but if it were full to capacity, we should not be falling so rapidly. Immediately I fell to examining the gauge, almost at once discovering that it had been tampered with and the needle set permanently to indicate a maximum supply. I turned to my companion. Mr. Norton, I said, please go forward and investigate the lunar eighth-ray tank and report back to me immediately. The young man saluted and departed. As he approached the tank, it was necessary for him to crawl through a very restricted place beneath the deck. In about five minutes, Norton returned. He was not so pale as he had been, but he looked very haggard. Well, I inquired as he halted before me. The exterior intake valve has been opened, sir, he said. The rays were escaping into space. I have closed it, sir. The valve to which he referred was used only when the ship was in dry dock for the purpose of refilling the buoyancy tank, and because it was so seldom used, and as a further precaution against accident, the valve was placed in an inaccessible part of the hull where there was absolutely no likelihood of its being accidentally opened. Norton glanced at the instrument. We are not falling quite so rapidly now, he said. Yes, I replied. I had noted that and I have also been able to adjust the lunar eighth-ray gauge. It shows that we have about half the original pressure. Not enough to keep us from going aground, he commented. No, not here, where there is no atmosphere. If the moon had an atmosphere, we could at least keep off the surface if we wished to. As it is, however, I imagine that we will be able to make a safe landing, though, of course, that will do us little good. You understand, I suppose, Mr. Norton, that this is practically the end. He nodded. It will be a sad blow to the inhabitants of two worlds, he remarked, his entire forgetfulness of self indicating the true nobility of his character. 
It is a sad report to broadcast, I remarked, but it must be done, and at once. You will please send the following message to the Secretary of Peace. USS the Barsoom, January 6, 2026, about 20,000 miles off the moon. Lieutenant Commander Orthus, while under the influence of liquor, has destroyed auxiliary engine and opened exterior intake valve lunar 8th ray buoyancy tank. Ship sinking rapidly. Will keep you. Norton, who had seated himself at the radio desk, leaped suddenly to his feet and turned toward me. My God, sir, he cried, he has destroyed the radio outfit also. We can neither send nor receive. A careful examination revealed the fact that Orthus had so cleverly and completely destroyed the instruments that there was no hope of repairing them. I turned to Norton. We are not only dead, Norton, but we are buried as well. I smiled as I spoke, and he answered me with a smile that betokened his utter fearlessness of death. I have but one regret, sir, he said, and that is that the world will never know that our failure was not due to any weakness of our machinery, ship, or equipment. That is indeed too bad, I replied, for it will retard transportation between the two worlds possibly a hundred years, maybe forever. I called to Weston Jay, who by this time had placed Orthus in irons and confined him to his stateroom. When they came, I told them what had happened, and they took it as coolly as did Norton. Nor was I surprised, for these were fine types, selected from the best of that splendid organization which officered the International Peace Fleet. Together we immediately made a careful inspection of the ship, which revealed no further damage than that which we had already discovered but which was sufficient, as we well knew, to preclude any possibility of our escaping from the pull of the moon. You gentlemen realize our position as well as I, I told them. Could we repair the auxiliary generator, we might isolate the lunar eighth ray, refill our tank, and resume our voyage. But the diabolical cleverness with which Lieutenant Commander Orthus has wrecked the machine renders this impossible. We might fight away from the surface of the moon for a considerable period, but in the end it would avail us nothing. It is my plan, therefore, to make a landing. Insofar as the actual lunar conditions are concerned, we are confronted only by a mass of theories, many of which are conflicting. It will, therefore, be at least a matter of consuming interest to us to make a landing upon this dead world where we may observe it closely. But there is also the possibility remote, I grant you, that we may discover conditions there which may in some manner alleviate our position. At least we can be no worse off. To live for fifteen years cooped in the hull of this dead ship is unthinkable. I may speak only for myself, but to me it would be highly preferable to die immediately than to live on thus, knowing that there was no hope of rescue. Had Orthus not destroyed the radio outfit, we could have communicated with Earth and another ship been outfitted and sent to our rescue inside a year. But now we cannot tell them, and they will never know our fate. The emergency that has arisen has, however, so altered conditions that I do not feel warranted in taking this step without consulting you gentlemen. It is a matter now largely of the duration of our lives. I cannot proceed upon the mission upon which I have been dispatched, nor can I return to Earth. I wish, therefore, that you would express yourselves freely concerning the plan which I have outlined. West, who was the senior among them, was naturally the one to reply first. 
he told me that he was content to go wherever I led, and Jay and Norton in turn signified a similar willingness to abide by whatever decision I might reach. They also assured me that they were as keen to explore the surface of the moon, at close range, as I, and that they could think of no better way of spending the remainder of their lives than in the acquisition of new experiences and the observation of new scenes. Very well, Mr. Norton, I said. You will set your course directly toward the moon. Aided by lunar gravity, our descent was rapid. As we plunged through space at a terrific speed, the satellite seemed to be leaping madly toward us, and at the end of fifteen hours I gave orders to slack off and brought the ship almost to a stop about nine thousand feet above the summit of the higher lunar peaks. Never before had I gazed upon a more awe-inspiring scene than that presented by those terrific peaks towering five miles above the broad valleys at their feet. Sheer cliffs of three and four thousand feet were nothing uncommon, and all was rendered weirdly beautiful by the variegated colors of the rocks and the strange prismatic hues of the rapidly growing vegetation upon the valley floors. From our lofty elevation above the peaks, we could see many craters of various dimensions, some of which were huge chasms, three and four miles in diameter. As we descended slowly, we drifted directly over one of these abysses, into the impenetrable depths of which we sought to strain our eyesight. Some of us believed that we detected a faint luminosity far below, but of that we could not be certain. Jay thought it might be the reflected light from the molten interior. I was confident that, had this been the case, there would have been a considerable rise of temperature as we passed low across the mouth of the crater. At this altitude, we made an interesting discovery. There is an atmosphere surrounding the moon. It is extremely tenuous, but yet it was recorded by our barometer at an altitude of about 1,500 feet above the highest peak we crossed. Doubtless in the valleys and deep ravines where the vegetation thrived, it is denser, but that I do not know, since we never landed upon the surface of the moon. As the ship drifted, we presently noted that it was taking a circular course paralleling the rim of the huge volcanic crater above which we were descending. I immediately gave orders to alter our course, since, as we were descending constantly, we should presently be below the rim of the crater, and, being unable to rise, be hopelessly lost in its huge maw. It was my plan to drift slowly over one of the larger valleys as we descended, and make a landing amidst the vegetation which we perceived growing in riotous profusion and movement beneath us. But when West, whose watch it now was, attempted to alter the course of the ship, he found that it did not respond. Instead, it continued to move slowly, in a great circle, around the inside rim of the crater. At the moment of this discovery, we were not much more than 500 feet above the summit of the volcano, and we were constantly, though slowly, dropping. West looked up at us, smiled, and shook his head. It is no use, sir, he said, addressing me. It is about all over, sir, and there won't even be any shouting. We seem to be caught in what one might call a lunar whirlpool, for you will have noticed, sir, that our circles are constantly growing smaller. Our speed does not seem to be increasing, I remarked, as would follow were we approaching the vortex of a true whirlpool. 
I think I can explain it, sir, said Norton. It is merely due to the action of the lunar eighth ray, which still remains in the forward buoyancy tank. Its natural tendency is to push itself away from the moon, which, as far as we are concerned, is represented by the rim of this enormous crater. As each portion of the surface repels us in its turn, we are pushed gently along in a lessening circle, because, as we drop nearer the summit of the peak, the greater the reaction of the eighth lunar ray. If I am not mistaken in my theory, our circle will cease to narrow after we have dropped beneath the rim of the crater. I guess you are right, Norton, I said. At least it is a far more tenable theory than that we are being sucked into the vortex of an enormous whirlpool. There is scarcely enough atmosphere for that, it seems to me. As we dropped slowly below the rim of the crater, the tenability of Norton's theory became more and more apparent, for presently, though our speed increased slightly, the diameter of our circular course remained constant, and at a little greater depth our speed as well. We were descending now at the rate of a little over ten miles an hour, the barometer recording a constantly increasing atmospheric pressure, though nothing approximating that necessary to the support of life upon Earth. The temperature rose slightly, but not alarmingly. From a range of 25 or 30 below zero, immediately after we entered the shadow of the crater's interior, it rose gradually to zero at a point some 125 miles below the summit of the giant extinct volcano that had engulfed us. During the next 10 miles, our speed diminished rapidly until we suddenly realized that we were no longer falling but that our motion had been reversed, and we were rising. Up we went for approximately eight miles, when suddenly we began to fall again. Again we fell, but this time for only six miles, when our motion was reversed, and we rose again, a distance of about four miles. This seesawing was continued until we finally came to rest, at about what we estimated was a distance of some 130 miles below the summit of the crater. It was quite dark, and we had only our instruments to tell us of what was happening to the ship, the interior of which was, of course, brilliantly illuminated and comfortably warm. Now below us, and now above us, for the ship had rolled completely over each time we had passed the point at which we came finally to rest, we had noticed the luminosity that Norton had first observed from above the mouth of the crater. Each of us had been doing considerable thinking, and at last young Norton could contain himself no longer. I beg your pardon, sir, he said deferentially, but won't you tell us what you think of it, what your theory is as to where we are and why we hang here in mid-air, and why the ship rolled over every time we passed this point? I can only account for it, I replied, upon a single and rather preposterous hypothesis, which is that the moon is a hollow sphere, with a solid crust some 250 miles in thickness. Gravity is preventing us from rising above the point where we now are, while centrifugal force keeps us from falling. The others nodded. They, too, had been forced to accept the same apparently ridiculous theory, since there was none other that could explain our predicament. 
Norton had walked across the room to read the barometer, which he had rather neglected while the ship had been performing her eccentric antics far below the surface of the moon. I saw his brows knit as he glanced at it, and then I saw him studying it carefully, as though to assure himself that he had made no mistake in the reading. Then he turned toward us. There must be something wrong with this instrument, sir, he said. It is registering pressure equivalent to that at the Earth's surface. I walked over and looked at the instrument. It certainly was registering the pressure that Norton had read, nor did there seem to be anything wrong with the instrument. There is a way to find out, I said. We can shut down the insulating generator and open an aircock momentarily. It won't take five seconds to determine whether the barometer is correct or not. It was, of course, in some respects a risky proceeding, but with West at the generator, Jay at the aircock, and Norton at the pump, I knew that we would be reasonably safe, even if there proved to be no atmosphere without. The only danger lay in the chance that we were hanging in a poisonous gas of the same density as the earthly atmosphere, but as there was no particular incentive to live in the situation in which we were, we each felt that no matter what chance we might take, it would make little difference in the eventual outcome of our expedition. I tell you that it was a very tense moment as the three men took their posts to await my word of command. If we had indeed discovered a true atmosphere beneath the surface of the moon, what more might we not discover? If it were an atmosphere, we could propel the ship in it. And we could, if nothing more, go out on deck to breathe fresh air. It was arranged that at my word of command, West was to shut off the generator, Jay to open the aircock, and Norton to start the pump. If fresh air failed to enter through the tube, Jay was to give the signal, whereupon Norton would reverse the pump, West start the generator, and immediately Jay would close the aircock again. As Jay was the only man who was to take a greater chance than the others, I walked over and stood beside him, placing my nostrils as close to the aircock as his. Then I gave the word of command. Everything worked perfectly, and an instant later a rush of fresh, cold air was pouring into the hull of the Barsoom. West and Norton had been watching the effects upon our faces closely, so that they knew almost as soon as we did that the result of our test had been satisfactory. We were all smiles, though just why we were so happy I am sure none of us could have told. Possibly it was just because we had found a condition that was identical with an earthly condition, and though we might never see our world again, we could at least breathe air similar to hers. I had them start the motors again then, and presently we were moving in a great spiral upward toward the interior of the moon. Our progress was very slow, but as we rose, the temperature rose slowly too, while the barometer showed a very slightly decreasing atmospheric pressure. The luminosity now above us increased as we ascended, until finally the sides of the great well through which we were passing became slightly illuminated. All this time, Orthus had remained in irons in his stateroom. I had given instructions that he was to be furnished food and water, but no one was to speak to him, and I had taken Norton into my stateroom with me. Knowing Orthus to be a drunkard, a traitor, and a potential murderer, 
I had no sympathy whatsoever for him. I had determined to court-martial him, and did not intend to spend the few remaining hours or years of my life cooped up in a small ship with him, and I knew that the verdict of any court, whether composed of the remaining crew of the Barsoom or appointed by the Judge Advocate General of the Navy, could result in but one thing, and that was death for Orthus. I had left the matter, however, until we were not pressed with other matters of greater importance, and so he still lived, though he shared neither in our fears, our hopes, nor our joys. About twenty-six hours after we entered the mouth of the crater at the surface of the moon, we suddenly emerged from its opposite end to look upon a scene that was as marvellous and weird by comparison with the landscape upon the surface of the moon as the latter was in comparison with that of our own earth. A soft, diffused light revealed to us in turn mountains, valleys, and sea, the details of which were more slowly encompassed by our minds. The mountains were as rugged as those upon the surface of the satellite, and appeared equally lofty. They were, however, clothed with verdure almost to their summits, at least a few that were within our range or vision. And there were forests, too, strange forests of strange trees, so unearthly in appearance as to suggest the weird phantasmagoria of a dream. We did not rise much above five hundred feet from the opening of the well through which we had come from outer space, when I descried an excellent landing-place and determined to descend. This was readily accomplished, and we made a safe landing close to a large forest and near the bank of a small stream. Then we opened the forward hatch and stepped out upon the deck of the Barsoom, the first earthmen to breathe the air of Luna. It was, according to earth time, 11 a.m., January 8th, 2026. I think that the first thing which engaged our interest and attention was the strange, and then to us unaccountable, luminosity which pervaded the interior of the moon. Above us were banks of fleecy clouds, the under surfaces of which appeared to be lighted from beneath, while through breaks in the cloud banks we could discern a luminous firmament beyond, though nowhere was there any suggestion of a central incandescent orb radiating light and heat as does our sun. The clouds themselves cast no shadows upon the ground, nor, in fact, were there any well-defined shadows even directly beneath the hull of the ship or surrounding the forest trees which grew close at hand. The shadows were vague and nebulous, blending off into nothingness at their edges. We ourselves cast no more shadows upon the deck of the Barsoom than would have been true upon a cloudy day on earth. Yet the general illumination surrounding us approximated that of a very slightly hazy earth day. This peculiar lunar light interested us profoundly, but it was some time before we discovered the true explanation of its origin. It was of two kinds, emanating from widely different sources, the chief of which was due to the considerable radium content of the internal lunar soil, and principally of the rock forming the loftier mountain ranges, the radium being so combined as to diffuse a gentle perpetual light which pervaded the entire interior of the moon. The secondary source was sunlight, which penetrated to the interior of the moon through the hundreds of thousands of huge craters 
penetrating the lunar crust. It was this sunlight which carried heat to the inner world, maintaining a constant temperature of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Centrifugal force, in combination with the gravity of the moon's crust, confined the internal lunar atmosphere to a blanket which we estimated at about 50 miles in thickness over the inner surface of this buried world. This atmosphere rarefies rapidly as one ascends the higher peaks, with the result that these are constantly covered with perpetual snow and ice, sending great glaciers down mighty gorges toward the central seas. It is this condition which has probably prevented the atmosphere, combined as it is within an almost solid sphere, from becoming superheated, through the unthinkable ages that this condition must have existed. The Earth's seasons are reflected but slightly in the moon, there being but a few degrees difference between summer and winter. There are, however, periodic windstorms which recur with greater or less regularity once each sidereal month, due, I imagine, to the unequal distribution of crater openings through the crust of the moon, a fact which must produce an unequal absorption of heat at various times and in certain localities. The natural circulation of the lunar atmosphere, affected as it is by the constantly changing volume and direction of the sun's rays, as well as the great range of temperature between the valleys and the ice-clad mountain peaks, produces frequent storms of greater or less violence. High winds are accompanied by violent rains upon the lower levels and blinding snowstorms among the barren heights above the vegetation line. Rains which fall from low-hanging clouds are warm and pleasant. Those which come from high clouds are cold and disagreeable. Yet, however violent or protracted the storm, the illumination remains practically constant. There are never any dark, lowering days within the moon, nor is there any night. End of chapter 2 Recording by Thomas Copeland